Welcome back to One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and thrilling tales from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from Western trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. I'll be focusing pretty much exclusively on Western trans history from the Victorian era to today, mostly because that's where my knowledge base is. Hopefully at some point I'll be able to bring on some wonderful experts and raconteurs from other regions to cover their histories. If you happen to be such an expert, give me a ring and let's chat about it. Last time on One from the Vaults, we discussed the mid-70s romance between trans woman Rachel and godfather of punk Lou Reed. Today, we'll be continuing to explore trans people's place in the 1970s, but moving to the west coast of Canada. We'll be focusing on a few city blocks in and around Davie Street in Vancouver, where trans and cis sex workers gathered, fought to protect each other, and organized for their rights. It's a story about sex worker solidarity, gay gentrification, and the dangers of criminalizing sex work. Much of this episode owes to the research of Becky L. Ross and Jamie Lee Hamilton, whose years of documenting the West End sex work strolls are absolutely invaluable. I'll be using a lot of direct quotes from their research, so I want to make sure to give them the full credit they deserve. This episode is nothing if not a love letter to their work. So, join us as we take a look at the rise and fall of the golden age of Hustlers. Vancouver, British Columbia, is a city founded on the unceded lands of the Coast Salish Indigenous peoples, specifically Squamish Nation, Musqueam Nation, and Tsleil-Waututh Nation. Unlike much of the rest of Canada that was ceded through treaties, however ethically dubious those treaties may be, Vancouver was stolen without this nation-to-nation treaty-making process. In 1763, the British Crown declared that lands could be acquired only through the signing of treaties with First Nations people. Occupying lands without signed treaties is illegal. To this day, almost the entire province of British Columbia exists as an illegal occupation of First Nations territory, even within the colonial framework, and continues to be subject to hotly contested land claims. It wasn't until the 1990s that the government of British Columbia would even consider negotiating treaties. And in 2014, a landmark Supreme Court case established that indigenous title to the land does in fact exist. Why is this relevant to a podcast ostensibly about trans history? We must begin here in order to understand why so many of the people we'll be focusing on today are indigenous. Illegal occupations, displacements, the horrors of the residential schools, 
and the legal and extra-legal impositions of European gender binaries and spiritual structures are directly responsible for the massively disproportionate number of Indigenous people, including trans and two-spirit Indigenous people, involved in the sex industry throughout Canada, but particularly in Vancouver. Though Montreal is perhaps better known as Canada's City of Sin, Vancouver has long had a reputation as the prostitution capital of Canada. Sex workers played a key role in the development of the city as early as the 1870s. By the 1920s, sex workers began working out of supper clubs. It was a relatively safe time, though Vancouver's vice squad would make sporadic busts. Perhaps the most legendary of these clubs was called the Penthouse. Owned by the Filipponi family since the early 1940s, the club came into existence around 1947. It was the kind of joint that defied social norms. Not only booking black entertainers like Sammy Davis Jr., but also housing them at a time when places like the Hotel Vancouver were refusing to give rooms to Louis Armstrong. After decades of skirting the law and social mores, the Penthouse Club was raided by the Vice Squad on December 31st, 1975. The Vice Squad alleged that the presence of so many sex workers at the Penthouse meant that the Filipponi brothers were acting as pimps. Anywhere from 80 to 100 sex workers a night could be found at the Penthouse Club, according to the prosecution. The Filipponi brothers' trial was absolutely wild. One of the brothers even pleaded for leniency because, quote, it would kill my mother, end quote. The trial dragged on for months with a packed courthouse of reporters and other looky-loos. Though they were convicted, the brothers successfully overturned this on appeal. By 1979, the penthouse was granted a new license by city council and reopened. In 1983, Joe Filipponi was shot and killed during a robbery. With the club temporarily shut down, sex workers moved en masse onto the streets. According to Becky Ross, there were suddenly around 200 sex workers on the streets. Not long thereafter, the first recorded murder of a sex worker in Vancouver history occurred. Congregating in and around Vancouver's West End, sex workers worked openly, flagrantly, on the streets. The West End at this time was the neighborhood, Vancouver's gay village, and as a result, trans sex workers dominated the scene. The tranny stroll, as it was known, overlapped with both fish strolls for cis women and hustler rows for cis men doing sex work. Most of the trans women doing sex work here were indigenous or white, though there were some Asian sex workers and at least one black trans sex worker during this period who we'll hear from later. Though other strolls existed in Vancouver, some predating the 1975 influx of sex workers from the bars and clubs, the West End was unique both in terms of the high proportion of trans sex workers and in that it was a pimp-free zone. 
Trans and cis sex workers formed alliances, created their own language and fashion, and began creating and implementing safety measures to help take care of each other. Trans sex workers helped each other get access to hormones and other medical treatments. This help often came intergenerationally, with older women like Mama Karen and Mama Dixie taking care of the new teen queens on the scene. Jamie Lee Hamilton, an indigenous trans woman who worked the stroll during this period, was one of the youngest people ever to receive access to trans medical care at the time, starting at age 15 in 1970. Another indigenous trans sex worker from the stroll, Reagan, said, I was very fortunate because I had breast development very fast. Yes, if you have native blood in you, your boobs grew. Jamie Lee pointed out that all that you had to pay for, there was no gender clinic, there was no care in the medical profession to assist us with our feminization process. Left to their own devices, they created a distinctive street fashion to both advertise to potential clients, but also to connect with each other. Becky Ross quotes Reagan, Remember the old bathing suit I used to wear? The black with the gold lame up the sides? It just framed me. That and six-inch heels and great big long native hair. Though police would threaten trans sex workers with arrest for cross-dressing in public, this period from 1975 to 1985 was one relatively free from the intense policing that would come later. Part of the reason for this is a Supreme Court decision, R. V. Hutt, in 1978, which loosened Canada's solicitation law for several years. Prostitution has technically always been legal in Canada, though there exist several laws that curtail it, including the solicitation in a public place law that prohibits sex workers from negotiating with clients in public spaces. Essentially, the R.V. Hutt case rested on the idea that a sex worker must be attempting to solicit clients in a, quote, pressing or persistent, end quote, manner. So when an undercover Vancouver police officer smiled back at a sex worker before she tried to solicit him, he was sort of legally opening the door to sex work. The court also stated that they would not consider the inside of a car a public place for the purposes of the solicitation law. Confusing, right? The takeaway is that Vancouver police had just lost and were taking a temporary step back from over-policing street-based sex workers, probably mostly in order to avoid lawsuits. This does not mean that their relationship with sex workers and trans women was good, though. Jamie Lee recounts a harrowing experience of being raped by an officer in Stanley Park. Getting back to the trans women working the streets, though many used hormones and had breast augmentation, most chose not to have vaginoplasty for economic reasons. They feared losing their money-making ability by, uh, losing their money-maker. 
they were able to charge higher rates than cis sex workers because of their unique attributes. Some, however, regularly engaged in what they called, quote, fake lays. Stacy, a black trans sex worker, described this. Initially, I confused them. You would have to convince them that you had a vagina between your legs when they were on top. I did so many damn fake lays. I always chose this hole right here, pointing to her anus. Want to see my pussy? It's right here. Straight men always want a queen. Always want a queen. Don't you be no fool. They always want a queen. Part of the reason they did fake lays was because the tranny stroll and the fish stroll, which is what they called the stroll for cis women, overlapped. As a result, many clients didn't always know who exactly they were getting. Reagan gives another account. In hotels, I always kept a tube of KY lubricant next to the radiator to keep it warm. So what I would do was I'd always have the KY and a towel beside the bed. And I would go to the client and say, I just had an abortion, so I want you to be very sensitive to my needs. I don't want you to hurt me, so I want to put padding between us so you don't hurt me. He's like, oh yes, all virile. I squeezed all of the KY and put my hands down there and I'm just like, oh yes. And he's like, oh my God, you've got the strongest pussy I've ever had. Trans sex workers insisted on condom use with clients for penetrative sex well before the AIDS epidemic would make that a necessity for all sex workers. While other sex workers worked through escort agencies, massage parlors, or brothels, trans sex workers defiantly occupied the streets. They didn't want to have to fork over part of their earnings to managers, sit by the phone all day waiting for calls, or give up control of their work. And more importantly, on the street they had each other. They were a tight-knit community, not unlike street sex workers of today, as portrayed in the recent film Tangerine, starring Maya Taylor and Katana Kiki Rodriguez, which you should check out if you haven't already seen. Together, they also worked outside the street as drag queens in bars like Champagne Charlie's, BJ's Show Lounge, and Numbers. The late 1970s were a golden age of prostitution. Most of the women Becky Ross interviewed emphasized that their clients were mostly respectful and grateful for their services. Trans sex workers would often work in duos, one taking down the license plate number of the car the other went into, holding it until they got back. When things went wrong, they felt empowered to take care of the situation. Reagan gives this great example. Nobody messed with Reagan. I would beat up bad dates. If a date came down and was harassing the girls, I'd drag him out of the car and kick the shit out of him. I'd say, go back to Surrey, you fucking punk ass. Us trannies would get really loud. I remember this date. He drove me around for a while. Now, any time with me costs money. I said, okay, you owe me time. He said, I'm not giving you any money. I saw on his finger that he had a wedding band. 
I was like, okay, you motherfucker. I pulled out my perfume and sprayed his car up and down. I was like, well, that'll teach you for not paying the hooker. Now deal with your wife tonight. Unlike the East End of Vancouver, the strolls in the West End were much less driven by drugs. And that was one of the many reasons workers cited feeling safer and more secure. They also worked together to keep pimps out of their business. Jamie Lee said, What would we have needed a stupid pimp for? How would they shine any wonderfulness on our life? We were shining our own wonderfulness on each other. They could not dictate to us. Reagan also told Becky Ross, Of course, no pimps would want a trans woman at that time. So they weren't making any money off me. I didn't see any fascination with pimping. I found it to be disgusting. If the pimps really wanted to make money off prostitution, I told them to put on a fucking dress and go out there and suck some cock. Though the police were busting people less for prostitution, in the early 1980s, they began finding other ways to harass trans sex workers. Reagan explained, the cops started charging you for jaywalking, or if you dropped a cigarette on the street, you were littering. They would write you up everywhere they could. And then you had to be out there even more to pay the bloody fines. We had to learn a new language to avoid getting busted for communicating. $60 to get me to rinse my mouth out with mouthwash. $80 to launder my panties. $100 for both. Jamie Lee reflected on this period. This is where we loved, worked, played, contributed to life, and were safe. Call it a family clan. We hung out together for protection, lived together, ate at the same restaurants, shopped together, took coffee breaks together on Davy. We often worked in pairs. We had an informal telegraph system. We knew where each other was at any given time. We looked after one another. If you were long from a date, we'd say, has Reagan come back from her date yet? What I call the outdoor brothel model provided us safety in numbers and a healthy, humane, and respectful way to engage in prostitution while transacting our business. But as with all good things, they must come to an end. In 1982, City Council enacted a bylaw targeting street-based sex work. Enforcement of the bylaw put sex workers at odds with police again. Even worse, residents of the neighborhood, newly upwardly mobile white gay men, began organizing to have trans sex workers expelled from their neighborhood in what would become the first, but certainly not the last, such struggle of gay gentrification in Canada. In future episodes, we'll cover what happened in Montreal and later in Toronto, where yours truly found herself in the middle of the conflict. Homosexuality had been partially decriminalized in 1969 with Trudeau's famous aphorism from the time, on um, uh, homosexuality, I think the, the view we take here is that uh, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And
and the following decade found gay communities in major cities across Canada coalesce openly for the first time. White gay men in particular were getting their first tastes of respectability as citizens, as business owners, and as the, quote, gay voting bloc, end quote. By 1979, the Vancouver Sun said that the West End gayborhood had come of age. As the 1980s rolled around, a group of gay and straight residents in the West End banded together to form the Concerned Residents of the West End, also known as Crow. And they joined forces with a vigilante group calling themselves Shame the Johns. Together, these groups began a campaign of harassment against sex workers and their clients, as well as political lobbying at City Hall they wanted all sex workers purged in the area. As I mentioned earlier, they were successful in lobbying City Hall to enact a bylaw in 1982 against street-based sex workers. Jamie Lee was arrested as a result of the 1982 bylaw. She recalled, I got through that night because other trans working girls had also been targeted and we shared cells and stayed up all night at Motel Hell, sharing our stories. This was great since being together provided us some measure of comfort and a setting in which to politically organize. I bet the police and legislators never banked on us mobilizing forces in their dingy jail. It is important to note that trans and cis sex workers didn't just work in the neighborhood. They lived there too. They shopped there. Their whole lives were in the West End. And all of a sudden, their neighbors and the owners of the businesses they had long patronized were trying to flush them out. And it wasn't just gay men. Radical feminists entered the scene labeling cis women sex workers victims and influenced by American Janice Raymond's infamous screed, The Transsexual Empire, they viewed trans women with suspicion and outright hostility that would only grow over the following decades. Can you imagine the sense of betrayal they must have felt as others within the LGBT community pushed them away? Trans sex workers joined forces with Vancouver's first sex workers' rights organization, the Alliance for the Safety of Prostitutes, or ASP. Founded in 1982, ASP grew out of Vancouver Rape Relief, an organization that is now infamous for its transphobic and anti-sex worker stances, which we'll get to in a future episode. ASP implemented one of the first bad date lists in the world, collecting information about abusive clients from sex workers and disseminating it via their newsletter, The Horganizer. As you can see in the brilliant 1984 documentary Hookers on Davy, which documents the lives of mostly trans sex workers in the West End, trans workers were deeply engaged in ASP's protests. Here's a clip from the 1984 film Hookers on Davy that documented some of these protests. In it, you'll hear a trans woman explain why she's protesting today, and then you'll hear some sounds from the actual protest itself. I'm here to support the hookers. I am a hooker. I've got no alternative. Welfare can't pay my rent. 
I'm here protesting because I'm not a criminal. I don't want to be locked up in jail just because I find this a good way to make a living. It's one of the best things I know how to do. Thank you. Everybody got a sign to carry? Everyone grab a sign. We're getting ready to go now. Alternatives not lost. Alternatives not lost. The documentary is on YouTube, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend. It's perhaps the first film capturing trans street life in Canada, and is very much a sort of Canadian Paris is burning. In June 1984, ASP protested Crow's actions with a peaceful demonstration on the 8th. And by the 20th, 12 members of ASP occupied the Christ Church Cathedral. They were protesting Crow and also the Attorney General's recent injunction banning sex work on Granville Street. The Attorney General had banned, quote, blatant, aggressive, disorderly prostitutes, end quote, from the West End. Then things got worse. In 1985, the Canadian Criminal Code was updated to include a new communication provision, essentially making all street-based sex work, even the kind that takes place in cars, illegal. The new law was the nail in the coffin of the West End sex work paradise. Sex workers were pushed into other areas, first upscale neighborhoods like Mount Pleasant, where residents also protested, and eventually, most street-based sex workers were pushed into the far more dangerous, drug-oriented, and pimp-controlled East End. Disappearances and murders of sex workers skyrocketed during this period, in particular Indigenous sex workers, leading to the movement for missing and murdered Indigenous women. Reagan put it like this, Crow and the judge said that it was okay to violate prostitutes. And what happened right after that? More missing women, people dying, people getting stabbed like crazy. Today, we need to have a float in the pride parade with a whole bunch of coffins on the trailer. In the end, the displacement of sex workers from the West End cost upwards of 70 women their lives and became yet another instance of colonial government forcibly removing indigenous women from the lands that were rightfully, lawfully their own. Jamie Lee Hamilton went on to become Canada's first trans person to run for public office and continues to organize for trans, sex workers, and indigenous rights in Vancouver. She and Becky L. Ross have formed the West End Sex Work Memorial Project to highlight the golden age of hustlers and, with backing from a new apologetic city council, will be creating a permanent memorial to the West End's history as a safer sex work stroll.
Reagan, and Stacy also remain as some of the last surviving members of the Tranny Stroll's heyday. What we can learn from their stories is that, as the adage goes, there are no bad whores, just bad laws. The implementation of anti-sex work laws, aided in large part by white gay gentrification efforts, led directly to the murders and assaults of trans and cis sex workers that would come to permanently mar the history of Vancouver, culminating in serial killer Robert Picton. We can also learn here that, given the freedom to organize together, trans and cis sex workers can unite to ensure each other's safety, to improve working conditions, and to form a strong sense of community. So, let's take a moment and remember the golden age of hustlers. For listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and thrilling tales from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec on the traditional territories of the Cree and Haudenosaunee. Research for this episode owes largely to the work of Becky L. Ross and Jamie Lee Hamilton, as well as the 1984 documentary Hookers on Davy. And other sources are credited in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. I hope you'll join us next time as we bring you another tale from trans history. Good night. Oh.